Then I went to work with dying people because who wants to work with dying people? I mean, we want to put them places where they'll be taken care of. So I went to work with dying people because that's getting to the first chakra where you really live. That's survival. And I would sit with people and watch their bodies disintegrate. And I would look and I would I, look behind and look behind. And you just keep practicing looking at what Mother Teresa calls Christ in all his distressing disguises. Welcome, everyone, to another Ramdas Here and Now episode. This is number 216, and our title today is From Psychedelics to Service. I'm your host, Jackie Dabrinska. And in this lecture, Ramdas explores how his psychedelic awakening and his quest to always stay high and stay in that state really took him down this path. And it led him to the curriculum of being human and how to use service as a means to get free. He really lays it out with such gentleness and lightness. Um, he's talking about how we seriously attach to our roles and identities, whether they're the ones of pain and limitation or even whether they're the ones of so-called enlightenment. He again, he tells us that the goal isn't to attach to any one of those identities, but really to allow whatever comes, to be fluid with whatever comes, and to know that we're none of those things. We're so much more than we think ourselves to be. Now, he does use some really heavy examples, and I want to give a small PSA around those. You know, today the world is a little bit more trauma-informed than when he gave this lecture in the 1980s. So for any of you out there who have experienced sexual trauma or abuse of any kind, please do not use his words to either bypass your experience or to heap any more shame, blame, or pain onto yourself. I know from my own history of traumatized thinking that it can be really easy to use anything, even spiritual teachings, as a kind of whipping post. And it's not what this is intended to do. Instead, it's more like the Buddhist teachings that remind us that everything, everything is workable. And even if I can never get to channel five where I can experience the oneness of everything, which he talks about in this lecture, if I only ever stay on channel one and two and have to continuously navigate through my own neuroses, still, everything is workable. We can create space around the habits of thought and the pain that binds us. You know, maybe this glue thins through meditation. Um, maybe it thins through trauma-informed therapy. Maybe, like it was for Ramdas, maybe it's psychedelics. Or maybe, as he talks about in this lecture, it's arts and crafts. You know, there's so many avenues that can lead us into a more expanded sense of self where we're less identified with our habits of thoughts and the ways we know ourselves to be. Um, and it's this both-and approach, right? Like we have this expanded nature that can't be named and we have this human curriculum. And 
you know, we go back and forth between them. Earlier this month, we were at the Maui retreat in Maui, <laughs> clearly. Um, and Jack Cornfield was there and he was talking about this dynamic nature that, um, like Ramdas is talking about in this lecture, we can't stay high all the time. We can't stay expanded all the time. We can't constantly have an open heart. You know, everything ex it contracts and expands. The heart beats. The breath moves in and out. And so we will also expand into those parts of ourselves that are unnameable and we will contract into the identities and the roles. And we move back and forth and the fluidity is the key. So, um, you know, we always want to hear what you have to say. We want to unpack these lectures together. And so we create a space a week after each episode where you can come and share your ideas and thoughts. And the next one is January 3rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We did miss the last few because of the holidays and the retreat, but we would love to see you. So please come. Uh, you can sign up and get the invitation and Zoom links by going to ramdas.org slash fellowship. Also, in this lecture, he refers to a book that he was a part of in 1966 when he was still Richard Alpert. Um, it is called LSD, A Journey into the Asked, the Answered, and the Unknown. And it was with psychoanalyst Sidney Cohen. Uh, it was a classic book, and it really introduced the world into this you know, experience of LSD. So that book was out of print for 50 years. And just last month, it was reprinted in a commemorative edition. And you can find it at shop.ramdas.org or wherever you buy your books. And it really still is um, an important book in this sort of resurgence of the psychedelic movement. Which, you know... There is the work that needs to be done between the experiences. And I think that's a really key and important piece. And this lecture talks about doing that work, doing the curriculum, being of service. So I hope you enjoy. And as always, whatever good may come from these teachings, may it benefit you in your daily lives and may it ripple out into the world. We thank each of you for being here and for all the many, many people that helped make this possible. And it is a big team that works together to make all of the pieces happen so that you can have these great lectures from these archives. Um, and each one of you also helped make this happen. So anyone who contributed this year to either Love, Serve, Remember Foundation or the Be Here Now Network, we're here today because of you. Maybe you joined a course and donated. Maybe you bought a book or a sweatshirt from our shop. Maybe you donated to our year-end fundraiser. But whichever way you contributed financially, it helps us be able to continue this, this mission, which is to spread the teachings of Ramdas and Neem Karoli Baba. So if you haven't yet donated this year or joined something, or even if you have, please consider making a year-end donation. Um, you can go to ramdas.org slash donate, and we appreciate it. So with that, please enjoy this lecture. I look forward to seeing you on the third and next year. Namaste and blessings. Those of you that know me, which is most of you, know that I only talk about myself and 
but that I, there's nothing personal in it. <laughs> that it's just, um, it's, uh, it's either a monumental ego or no ego. You could look at it either way. I think it, uh, because I just keep finding more and more that I just keep finding more and more that as far as fast as I run to get to freedom, I come up to people and I tell them where I've got and they say, sure, that's where I am. <laughs> and I, so, I realize now, I've realized it for years, but uh, that you, thank God, I finally accept the fact that you don't expect me to be further out than you are. I have been working my butt off for years to be higher than you, and it's been driving me up the wall, and finally I accept that I'm not. I'm just another one of us. I just say it good, all right? I say it, I say it well, right? So. <laughs> so now I don't have to get stoned to lecture. I don't have to do any of those things. I can just come out, and I'm human, and you're human, and here we are, and we're just comparing notes, seeing where we are. For those of you that haven't uh, met me before, um, I'll just give you the briefest run-through from inside, the biography run from inside. Uh, the key turning point in my life was when Tim Leary gave me psilocybin on March 6, 1961, when we were both Harvard professors, and it blew my mind. That's a fair statement right from the beginning. Okay? And um, what it showed me, which it showed many of you, is that I wasn't who I thought I was. And it showed me that, it showed me a place in myself or a quality of myself behind the way I knew myself to be, the way I had thought I was. It was as if all the models I had, all the definitions, all the roles, all the concepts got laid aside and behind it all, I just found myself being. That was the first thing I noticed. I couldn't label it at all. In fact, any label I put on it seemed to try to contain it, and it wasn't labelable. And I've tried desperately to label it, but it isn't labelable. It's the unspoken, the unnameable quality of ourselves. The other thing I noticed was that, or another thing I noticed, was that when I was in that space, when I looked at forms in the universe, I was awed by the beauty and perfection of them and the preciousness of them. And I looked with wonder and awe at everything from a blade of grass to an old rusty this or that, everything. I remember uh, doing a book on LSD with Sidney Cohen in the 60s. He was the good guy and I was the bad guy. And we picked pictures for the book. It's called, it was put up by New American Libraries. And he picked all the pictures that showed druggies looking like, you know. 
And I picked all the pictures of people looking at flowers and smiling and running in meadows and stuff. There was only one picture we both picked. And it was a picture of a fellow lying on the floor looking at a bottle of spilled Coca-Cola at the puddle. He obviously picked it to show that under drugs, you get so trivial, you'll look at spilled Coca-Cola. Those of you that know what's in that spilled Coca-Cola know why I picked it. Because <laughs> I saw it's like a holography. Everything was in everything. There was just an incredible richness in it all. And I experienced in that moment incredible love and compassion towards everything. And the thing that was interesting about that is it all felt very natural and familiar to me, even though as an adult I had never experienced that space before. I had been so locked in my mind, I had never experienced it. And that familiarity felt like I was at home, really in the deepest sense of my being at home. Well, a few hours later, of course, I, what you call, came down, and I had it as a memory. And at first, and for the first couple of hundred sessions after that, I assumed the drug was taking me to some, the chemical was taking me to some place other than myself, because I identified primarily with where I started from, not where I went each time. And then I kept noticing how familiar that place was to me. And I be, it began to dawn on me that that was my natural identity and that what had happened was in, the, in my zeal to get socialized in this incarnation, I had bought into a model of myself that kept narrowing who I was and that I was, couldn't get out from under so easily. And I saw that my high was my natural state and I got interested in why you come down. And that became my focus of attention. Now, this all sounds like a drug story to you, but and I must tell you, I, many of you know this story because I've told it before so many times, but it's such a delicious story. In the 70s, when I was lecturing and everybody wore white and smiled a lot, and they were all between 15 and 25, uh, one evening there was a woman sitting down in the front, and she was probably around 70, and she was wearing a little hat with strawberries and cherries and, and things on it, uh, plastic. And uh, she was wearing a um, print dress and responsible Oxfords. And she had a black patent leather bag and a net on her hair. And um, I thought as I looked around the room, there is somebody's grandmother. You know? And obviously they said, hey, grandma, you got to come hear this guy. And she did it. She's a hip grandma. So I started to talk, and I started to talk this talk, see, because in those days, we all knew, you see, we were the people who knew, and it was just a matter of time in those days, till, <laughs> you remember those days? Yes. <laughs> Tim and I had a chart on the wall of how soon everybody would get enlightened, you know, it was like, And I started to tell the kind of in stories that all of us who knew knew. And I'd look over and there would be this woman nodding. 
And I thought, how does she know? <laughs> so I tell a little further out story. You know, I was on acid in Mexico in the ocean in the middle of the night, and I had this experience where the thread of life was cut, and she's going like this, see? <laughs> so I figure, well, maybe she's got a neck problem. You know, I mean, that's the... <laughs> By the, and I kept experimenting, and she kept doing it. And by the end of the lecture, I couldn't wait to get her, you know. And I kept looking at her and smiling. And she came over, and she said, thank you so much. That's just the way I understand things to be. <laughs> and I said, how do you know? I mean, what have you done that allows you to know these things? And she leaned forward very conspiratorially, and she said, I crochet. <laughs> <laughs> So you appreciate that while my route through happened to be chemicals, obviously, <laughs> crocheting gets you to just the same place as do numerous other methods as we could sample in this audience. But I could see the sequence at that point. I could see that it was necessary for me to incarnate, to take, to get caught into my separateness. And then I started to wake up because the awakening showed me that there was only one of the things. Uh, you're all familiar with my little chart, the channels on the television thing. Uh, in channel one, you look out and you see physical bodies, man, woman, old, young, fat, thin, dark, light, right? We all have an identity in there. Then you flip to channel two and you look out and you see all psychology and social roles. You see manic depressives and hysterics and eager achievers and responsible people and irresponsible people and mothers and truck drivers and lawyers and judges and people, you know, and all the social psychological stuff. That's channel two. And most everybody lives on one and two. That's it. And if you say, who are you, they'll define themselves in one or two. That's real. And that's what my parents told me. That's real. Okay? Get your act together. That's real. Get grounded. That's who you are. Okay? Take care of your body and don't be so neurotic. Okay? <laughs> now, if you shift to channel three, you see suddenly there's only 12 of us. You're either an Aries or Leo or Sagittarius. <laughs> <clears throat> and you've got new power and new consciousness and you suddenly see the world in a different way. And what you've done by doing that is very profound because at that moment, you see that the first two planes that you grew up thinking were the only reality are only relatively real. So you've just made the, that's the major issue of awakening, that you take what was absolutely real and you flip it so you see it's relatively real. And that there are other places you can go that are just as real. See, you had it all the time. You had dreams and all that stuff, but you treated them as dreams, you know. You didn't think this was a dream. You thought, this is real. That's a dream. Now you see that's dreams and dreams and dreams. Channel four. You look into somebody else's eyes and you see somebody just like you looking back at you. It's just they're packaged differently. Packaged in body, personality, and astrology. All the individual differences are packaging, and you see another being just like you, and you say, are you in there? Wow, how did you get into that one? <laughs> see? 
Now you're meeting an interesting part of yourself, you see, because you're meeting that part of you that incarnated into all these individual differences, right? And that's just as real as the rest of them are. Then if you flip it another time, you're just looking at yourself, looking at yourself. There's only one of it looking at itself. Uh, I'm talking to myself. We are the many. We are the one in drag appearing as the many. This is just a talk to itself. Right? We all think we're separate sometimes. But behind it, there's only one of us here. And that's true. That's equally as true as the fact that you have a body. And then finally, if you turn it the next time, you disappear and I disappear and the thought disappears and the whole game disappears. And then the Buddhists are happy. <laughs> They've covered the void. Now, I thought originally, because I had been trapped in channel one and two so long, that getting high meant to get to channel three at least, preferably to four and maybe to five. Because <clears throat> five was the one where I was it. Just I am, not I am this or I am that, not I'm an Aries or I'm a this or I'm a that. I am. It's the real meaning of Shema Yisroel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. There's only one of it, and we're it. I used to think getting high was that. And in that model of getting high, I tend to put down the old familiar channels one and two because they were kind of a drag. They were heavy and thick and suffery. And yeah. then I get out and I, <gasps> wow, I'm here again. Oh, boy, is it nice. And then the chemical would wear off. <laughs> so I began to study why you come down, why those two channels grab at you and suck you back down and how I could stay high all the time. I obviously couldn't do it chemically. I tried. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't alone in that. <laughs> then I went to India and I met uh, Neem Karoli Baba, my guru. Um, and you can read about that in a book called Be Here Now, uh, that story. And when I met him, after I had been, had my mind blown by him, because he represented what I was trying to get to, and he was it. He was the first one I met who was it, naturally. And he took my chemicals like they were water, because he had nowhere to go. <laughs> See, I took them to get out of here and get there, and he was already here and there, so what the hell difference does it make to him? And I said to him, how can I know God? And he said, feed people. And I said, how can I get enlightened? Because I figured maybe he didn't understand the question. <laughs> and he said, serve people, because he said, serve people. And, you know, you don't go to India expecting Mickey Mouse answers like that. I mean, you go to the mysterious Orient and you climb the mountain. It's the foothills of the Himalayas. And you finally come to your guru and you sit at his feet and you expect something better than feed people and serve people. I mean, you could get that from your mother, you know, that, <laughs> So I figured he was just, that was sort of the exoteric teaching. The esoteric teaching I'd have to get some other way. I mean, he'd give it to me inside. Hmm. And I decided really meditation was what the real macho seekers did. So they, I mean, that's what the heavies do, you know, the heavies. Do. 
So I meditated. Boy, I have meditated for years. I have meditated. And it's great. I mean, it's incredible. Because you see that what brings you down is the attachment you have to your own thoughts. That's what traps you. And so you try to unglue the sticky fingers of thoughts. And you do that through meditation. Now, along the way in this process, I met beings who tried to show me that I had a, a fallacious model. And I read lots of things that said that, but I didn't really, really hear it. Uh, when I met Emmanuel, Emmanuel is a dear friend of mine, who some of you know about. Emmanuel is... Um, I'm amazed at how many people have prejudice. They say they don't, and you know them well, and they say, I don't have any prejudice. Uh, and I say, I have a friend of mine who says, I'd love to meet him. And you say, well, the thing about Emmanuel is he doesn't have a body. He's a spook. And you watch them like their faces change, you know. I mean, <laughs> I could handle your friend if he was, you know, or she was, but no body, you know. I, you see where people's prejudices are. You really see, you know. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Emmanuel is great. He's got a great sense of humor, as I've said before. When I, I work with dying people, among other things, and when I said to him, Emmanuel, what do I tell people about dying? He said, tell them it's absolutely safe. <laughs> that sneaks up on you. It's a good really. He said, it's like taking off a tight shoe. Who wouldn't like a friend like that? At any rate, I said, Emmanuel, what should I be doing in Earth? What's my business? He said, Ramdas, you took and you, you're enrolled in a school. Why don't you try taking the curriculum? Why don't you try being human? You know, I'd never thought of that. <laughs> it's far out. My whole plan was that you get enlightened by being divine. And my humanity was kind of an error that I keep under the rug. I mean, you don't bring out your human. Nobody wants your humanity. They want your divinity. All is one. We are truth. Light is. Not God. I'm, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> they don't want all that, see? And it finally dawned on me that my incarnation wasn't an error. I mean, here I'd get high and I'd look out at the perfection of the universe and everything was perfect except my incarnation for some reason. I could never, it never dawned on me that my incarnation, including the all the secret things that I wouldn't tell you, those are all perfect too. It's all lawful. It's all unfolding law. Because when you stand back far enough, you look and you see the law in everything. You see the way karma works. You see the perfection of the unfolding of everything. You see that not a blade of grass is bent, that it doesn't affect everything in the universe. You can feel that interrelationship of all things. But somehow, although it was all perfect and the form was the other side of the formless, when it came to me, I felt that I had to get rid of this to be that. You may never have gotten sucked into that one, but I certainly did. All right? And I finally came to the realization of what it meant when they said there is nowhere to stand. 
To be free, there is nowhere to stand. If you are standing up on a higher plane to look down at the lower planes, you're still standing somewhere. And if you're standing somewhere, it is something that is going to change because somewhere is form and it's in time and all things change. All forms change. So there's fear in it. Even if you're a god of the wind or the gods or goddesses, it's all just in time. Big time, but time. I mean, along the way of spending all this time with these Hindus, I, Hindus, I, <laughs> double O, I learned, I learned a lot about time. And the Buddhists, my goodness. You remember Buddha's image of how long you've been doing this? Remember that one? Six mile, a miles, a mountain, six miles long, six miles wide, six miles high. Every hundred years, a bird flies over it with a silk scarf in its mouth and runs the scarf over the top of the mountain once every hundred years. In the length of time, it takes the scarf to wear away the mountain. That's how long you've been doing this. Huh. <laughs> so what did you do that life? See, each life is like... <laughs> See, that was the life I was looking down. Then I... 10,000 lives, I started to look up. It's all like these still frames of this movie. It's just great image. And there's no rush, you see, because if you don't finish this time, what difference am I mean? You got infinite numbers ahead of you. I said to Emmanuel, but what about the bomb? He says, don't be silly. School won't be out so soon. <laughs> he said, how presumptuous that humans think they can destroy the earth. Huh. What I sensed at that, through all that, was that standing nowhere meant that higher wasn't higher than lower. It was just that you use the higher in order to get free of the lower, and then you had to get free of the higher so that you were neither in the higher or lower and you were in all places all at once. So that when you and I meet, we are in our bodies, we are in our personalities, we are in our astrology, we are in our souls, we are in God, and we aren't. And it's all equally true. Okay, equally true, equally true. And that's what free is. And those are just phony categories anyway, more of the mind. And that a big chunk of us is that last channel, which is the formless, which exists quite outside of the form. And even saying outside is form. So you've got to realize language stops at this point. That a lot of us is formless. Emmanuel said to me at one point, he said, you guys have a choice of whether you want to be the victim or the creator. Could have said it nicer and said, you have the choice of whether you want to be the creator or the created. Because there is a part of each of us that is behind the part that incarnated that was privy to and in fact instrumental in choosing which way we took this trip this time. Well, I cleaned up all those things. Let's see. I think next time I'll, I think I'll be born in Marin. That'll be good. That'll work out that karma. And let's see. I, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that would clean that one up. Okay, I'll get, 
I think I'll, my parents will get divorced when I'm three. That'll create trauma. Let's see. And then I'll, yeah. I think I should get raped at 11. That would be excellent for that problem. And, oh, I get run over at 16. That would wipe out that time 50,000 lives back when I did. Perfect. So you look around and you run through until you find some parents that need you, like you need them. And they say, we'll go first. And you say, I'll wait. And then they'll call you. And then they get down, they call you. And you say, everybody, see you later. And you dive down. And you go, wah, wah, because you're a baby now. And you buy in. You think it's real. And you're in Marin. And isn't it wonderful? And your parents get divorced. And it's terrible and traumatic. And then you get raped. And my God. And then suddenly you're dead. And you're back and say, hi, everybody. And down on earth, everybody say, oh, she was so young. Yeah. It depends on where you're looking at it from. I mean, if you've got to stay in fourth grade the whole year, isn't any better than getting out after two months? Huh. That's why working with dying people is so interesting, because they all take it so seriously. Dying is the biggest drama going. It, everybody gets caught in it. I mean, that's why we're here. We're caught in our separate entities. We really think we're losing something. That's why the Hindus are fun. They call it dropping the body. See, somebody drops the body. Who are you? I dropped my body. I am about to drop my body. Well, once you see about freedom, then you want to be free. And at first, you want to be free enough to, say, practice trying to get free on Saturday night. Or maybe Sunday morning is more appropriate. You go to church to get free. And the rest of the week, you've got important business. But after a while, it creeps up on you. It starts to permeate your life. I mean, you want to get free more than you want the rest of the stuff. It takes a while. I mean, don't rush it. If you only want to be free a little bit, that's okay. There's no rush. But you get so you are... The last attachment you're going to have is the attachment to enlightenment. That one has to go too, but hold on to it for a while to get rid of the other ones. Use that one to get rid of them and then throw that one away. And the attachment to enlightenment leads you to look at the things in you that are keeping you stuck standing anywhere and go to work on them. People don't like my use of the word work. They say it sounds heavy. Go to play on them. I don't care. It's the same thing. But Gurdjieff uses work in a nice way. You know? We've got to work on ourselves. Now, it's interesting what the work is, because at first the work is quieting the mind and opening the heart. And you can do that best in places where people aren't, because people tend to get you to close your heart and to get your mind agitated. You notice? Okay. Because you can't really trust people, you know. I mean, even the ones you can trust, you can't quite trust. You know. All the way. I mean, all the way. Because to trust somebody all the way, they would have to be an unconditional lover. And for them to be an unconditional lover means they can't want anything. And if they don't want anything, they're already enlightened. And how many enlightened people do you know? How many people do you know that don't want something? If only you, for you to recognize that they're enlightened. <laughs> 
let alone a Rolls Royce. That's mean. You shouldn't hit somebody when they're down. Our true nature is beyond all categories. Whatever you can conceive or imagine is but a fragment of yourself. Hence, the real you cannot be found through logical deduction or intellectual analysis or endless imagining. Zen master Yasutani. Another Zen monk says, die while you are alive and be completely dead, then do whatever you will. <laughs> See, and die while you're alive means die out of standing somewhere, die out of thinking you are. Like, you say to me, who am I? I have no idea who I am. I don't even care. I mean, I'll be whatever you want. It doesn't matter to me. Whatever is appropriate at the moment is what I am. What will I be tomorrow? I don't know. Remember that wonderful story about the rabbi who left every day to go across the, in Poland, I think, he went left every day to go across the, the town square to the, to the synagogue? And he came out, he'd been doing it for 20 years, and he came out, and the Cossack was riding through on his horse, and he says, good morning, Rabbi, where are you going? And the Rabbi says, I don't know. And the Cossack thought he was impertinent, because everybody knew the Rabbi went to the synagogue. So the Cossack arrested him and took him to jail. And the wife came down, and she said to the Rabbi, what, what did you say to him? He said, I told him I didn't know where I was going. She says, but you were going to the synagogue. He says, I didn't know I was going to end up in prison. I remember landing at um, Heathrow Airport in, in England <clears throat> about a few years back. I was attending the World Humanities Conference, which had members of parliament and it had Ruth Carter Stapleton and all kinds of impressive people. And I was on the program and I was being met by dignitaries and all, except that I didn't get through customs. I mean, I wasn't carrying anything except that I was on a list that I was... Uh, not conducive to the well-being of the United Kingdom, <laughs> mainly because of my affiliation with Timothy Leary. So I was detained, and then I was um, uh, thrown out of the country. And um, so I had planned to arrive and be welcomed and taken to a hotel, and then I found myself sitting in this green room with guys w guarding the doors, and I was sitting there with Pakistanis and and Africans, South Africans, and all these people who were being also not conducive to the well-being of the United Kingdom. And we were a great group, and we spent the day together. We had a wonderful day, you know. <clears throat> it took me a few minutes to go from what to wow, you know, this is a much more interesting day than I expected to spend, you know. <laughs> so it's always a question of how long it takes you to let go, you know. How long does it take you to let go? You're healthy, and then, sorry to tell you, but you have Wow. Hmm. Ah. Ooh. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> so you get to you. You get so that you want to. Your attachments get so subtle. See that you can actually slide by as long as you're by yourself, or among other people who are very careful. You can stay pretty high all the time, and you can. Oh, I love you. It's you. Ah. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. 
But it's great when you come into the marketplace and then you see somebody as that story, somebody jostles you when you feel anger. And what the hell is that doing there? You know, I got rid of anger. I gave up anger. Okay. So what you find is that when you really want to get free, you got to look for the stash of attachment, your own secret stash, because you don't even know how to get it. And what you've got to do is put yourself in situations that are going to push your buttons. And you get hooked on it. And people say, what a masochist. I mean, you don't actually go out looking for suffering, but when it comes down the pike, you recognize it as grace. That's far out, isn't it? I mean, whoever thought we could sit as a group of 1,500 people and say suffering is grace and have everybody sit there like, right, you know, that's far out. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty mashugana, you know, if you ask me. So you get so that you look for those things that are going to grab you, you know, and you're drawn towards them. And a lot of the things that society just wants to make believe aren't there, you suddenly realize that you want to make believe they're not there too. And so you turn and look at them and you consume them into yourself. You just work with them until all that attachment of revulsion or attraction disappears. You have to work with your attractions as well as your aversions. Many of you are good at working with your attractions. You get a little weak on the aversion side. Hmm. I'm working through my sexual problems, just greater frequency and I'll be done in about 30 years. <laughs> Don't rush. It's all right. There's lots of time and it's, and we're human and it's not an error. So I found myself a few years back starting to go back into relationships, you know. That's the stuff that I psychologically decided I didn't need. Now I realized I did need it. I worked with it. And I found myself attracted to projects that I would have stayed away from in the past 10 years or so. I've been working with prison, people in prison, which is hardly the grooviest segment of society in terms of they're not bad, but the situation is really pretty horrendous. In terms of metal and anger and, and lousy food and hard vibes. You know? And we started the prison ashram project. And I used to go into prisons. I've been to San Quentin death row. You know, when you go in and you figure, gee, I'm right at the edge of my capacity to stay conscious through this. And you suddenly find that you're in love with everybody there, the warden included. And you just you ate another one. You ate another demon. You took on, you went jousting, and you took on another one of those huge monsters. And you find out there's just beings in prison as well as out of prison. Because what happens is we keep getting caught in the symbolic, the symbolic identity of people. Like I've had a hard time dealing with rich people because I'm Jewish. So, I mean, you're human and you're human and you're, and you're rich. See? <laughs> Suddenly a rich person comes and I change. Hello, I'm Ramdas, you know. <laughs> I never get a nickel for it, but I mean, I've been working at it for three. I was just trained from my child. It's in my blood, you know, I can't help it. <laughs> uh -huh. 
And the Prison Project, by the way, which was putting out Inside Out, is now putting out a new book that Bo Losov did, which is called We're All Doing Time. And it's given away free to anybody in prison. And uh, the Prison Project says, since you got to do time, use the time to get free of time. How to get high in prison. How to get high on lousy food and stuff like that. Then I went to work with the dying people, because who wants to work with dying people? I mean, we want to put them places where they'll be taken care of. So I went to work with dying people, because that's getting to the first chakra where you really live. That's survival. And I would sit with people and watch their bodies disintegrate. And I would look and I would look behind and look behind. And you just keep practicing looking at what Mother Teresa calls Christ in all his distressing disguises. Remember that? For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So part of the process is of taking the symbolic value of somebody, prisoner, guard, dying person, and seeing your reactivity to the role and to the symbol, and then cutting through, staying with it long enough before you get busy into your reactive mode to look through and see there's another being who's taken an incarnation in which this is the scenario they're running through, and can you make contact with that being back there? Well, sometimes they're busy in their scenario. In fact, most people are. So you can't lay a trip saying, oh, you know you're not really dying, because they don't want to hear that. And you have a moral responsibility not to take away anybody's suffering unless they want to let it go. You don't rip stuff from people. That's a really interesting one. It's a very funny moral law. Because you think, oh, somebody I love is suffering. I'll just take them and they'll kill you. Because they don't want to give up their suffering. You got to wait for, but what you do is you work on yourself until you create an environment where if they want to come up for air, there's nothing in you that's going to keep them stuck in that role. I mean, you see a dying person is surrounded by people who see them as a dying person. Poor thing. Mm-hmm. Let me hear. Uh, uh. And a certain look and a certain vibration, a certain tone of visitors. And I've got stories in my new wonderful book, How Can I Help, about people who are dying say, nobody hears me. Nobody knows I'm in here. They're so busy dealing with me as a dying person. And you wait and you listen and you just look through until there's another being just there. And then some of the people that are dying are right there in that other person. And they say, boy, wow, it's good to be with you. And you look at the scenario of you're dying and I'm visiting you. So we started a dying center. And the dying center had a very simple model. It is an ashram. It is a meditation. It is a monastic setting in which everybody in it is a member of the ashram that is there in order to get free. That's all, there's only one category of people. It just happens that some of the people that are in there are also dying 
And some of the people that are in there are also people who take care of people dying. But the first rule of the game is everybody's in there to get free. That's a great leveler. And it puts the whole business of dying into a different perspective. That's why we call it the dying center. Hmm. Couldn't you find a better name? <laughs> the living dying center. Got lots of euphemism. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.